0: O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you, give us the help of your grace. And in keeping your commandments, we may please you both in will and deed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So if you you will, imagine that you are at a... uh, some sort of a, a party, a gathering of friends, and everything, the, the, uh, emotion is like one of joy, lightheartedness, and you're, you're off to the side and you're talking with a friend who is going through troubles, and this friend pours their heart out to you, and the, the subject matter is really deep and very concerning. And because of your love for your friend and, uh, the depth of pain the friend is expressing, the mood changes. And the rest of the night for this party, that mood is colored by this conversation. There's a weightiness that has entered. In Luke's gospel, at this point, we've come to a turning point. We came to a turning point as the disciples recognized that Christ is, uh, that Jesus is the Christ of God. Um, Then he told them that he would be going to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, um, that he would be... uh, Put to death, but then rise again, and this is repeated. and And we didn't hit these uh, verses because of we were off that week, so we're just skipping that piece. But in forty four, it said, uh, "Let these words sink in into your ears; sink into your ears." The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand the saying; it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So he's told them again what's going on. And this is that situation in the party where the, where the mood changes, and that thing that was once lighthearted has this weightiness to it. The, the passages from here forward, and we are only in nine, and we are at the end of nine, but we have many chapters to go with this weightiness to it. There's this looming thing of Jerusalem and what's to come there in the future, verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So there's, and, and it's understood that he might be quoting Isaiah 57, 50, chapter 50, verse seven, which is on the front of your bulletin and it says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There's something beautiful as we'll cover these next ten chapters of this divine determination that Jesus has. There, there'll be the falling away of the twelve. There'll be the falling away of the crowds. But Jesus has this determination to make the trip complete. A weightiness to it because he knows what's coming. But he will complete the journey. Now Today's lesson um, gives us insight to what it is like to follow Jesus along the road heading to Jerusalem. We're going to see the demands um, and the trials of following Jesus on the road. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus um, demands that his followers show mercy. So beginning in 52, it says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So at this point, the crowds have grown. And so Jesus is not going to take all the crowds. He He sends messengers ahead of him to make preparations for him landing in a village. And as they did, he, the, the uh, messengers go, and they're not accepted. And so, um, as the Samaritans rejected the, him or the messengers, James and John hear about this, and their response. I, as I'm reading this initially, you're just. I find this almost humorous. You're like, what? A, what a reaction! And how out of place this seems in the New Testament. This seems like a flashback from something from the Old Testament, and indeed it was, but. There was there was this animosity. There was a hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews, and it goes back for centuries. And it's one of those things where so little time and so much hate. You're like, we just need to hate these people more if we could only live longer, so we could hate them more. That's kind of the passion with which they hated each other. The uh, the Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrian conquerors. And so the Jews then called them half-breed apostates. And then the Samaritans, in turn, called the Jews apostates, though full-bred, but not, not half-breed apostates, just apostates. And so they had this thing going back and forth between them for centuries. There was no love lost between them. What James and John knew of Elijah calling down fire from heaven on King uh, Ahaziah's Men, because, uh, he, the king, rejected God. And so they're, they're, they're thinking that, okay, we're in the same situation, let's do that. Well, the Samaritans were simply returning the rejection of the Jews, and, and they really weren't, at this point, rejecting God. These disciples, James and John, particularly, who were saying this, they had heard Jesus, they were with Jesus, and they had heard him say in Luke 6, 27 and 28, he said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But these disciples, like us, have to learn to put this into action, which is challenging. Because this hate goes deep. They were, you know, they are kind of born into this and they were raised in it. It's, it's, it's one of those things, they, it would be difficult for them to think a different way. So they're, in the natural, they're understanding that this is, this only seems reasonable and right. But those who follow Jesus on the road should be merciful as he is merciful. We find that I think this can be a challenge for us. Um, and if we were just sitting around our table on a Wednesday night and eating our meal and talked about this very topic, I think we could find story after story where we have been, each one, have been generous and showed mercy to people and in a very natural and by the Holy Spirit kind of way in that natural way in Christ. But I think also there are times where we might actually delight or take joy in the judgment or pending judgment on specific groups of people. Now, so, you know, in this day and age where if somebody disagrees with you, they must be an arch enemy. That's, this is just kind of where we live. It's how things are. So, the idea that if you were a Republican to sit at the same table and have a friend called a Democrat, that's like getting to be unheard of, or vice versa, because the only thing we know is we're supposed to hate those people. And then the way the church is perceived, the church, and the church, doesn't, the church doesn't gain these perceptions in public without some merit, but the church is perceived as one who hates the LGBT community. And so then they rally together to kind of stand their ground and push more boundaries. And then the church, in response, might seem like it hates them even more. And it could be, and I got to witness some of this when we were talking about the, uh, that thing called, the uh, fairness thing, the uh, non-discrimination ordinance. When you hear Christians giving testimony or expressing their opinion, it may be that they seem like they would delight in the judgment Of those people that's just not the way we're supposed to operate the 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 people with opposing thoughts are not supposed to be our uh enemies who we who we cherish the thought of just hating the people who live differently those people who live in sin class it's like the everybody it's like those who we once were is what paul says we can't hold them to a standard that is for those in christ and then we can't be mad at them and hate them because they don't live like regenerated people are supposed to live cuz they're not so and that's not we don't even see we're up we are up through chapter 9 we haven't seen Jesus doing this with them yet at all those who are the furthest out those who have been rejected by society he comes around and he enters into their world so the fact that we ha- there may be a group and I just think there's some checks and balances, and I think it would be good for us. I think it's good for those who are in our, our our circle of influence, those friends and people, that we recognize that there may be people, there may be groups of people, who reject the Christian faith or the Christian teachings at the present time. But the thing we've got to recognize is they have opportunity, the individual has opportunity to repent and believe until death um uh, until the time of death and so we should be showing mercy entering into the world where we could build relationship and sharing the truth of the gospel with them and the truth of the gospel i think is shared with people in real lives for me to stand out here on the porch because i'm in the front of a church and i'm a pastor i could put on my collar and start throwing rocks at anybody that i disagree with i just don't think that's the way to actually attract people or build relationships so we are charged to show mercy. I think those are very pertinent and real-life applications for that, that we have here in our midst. The second thing, as we see that Jesus demands that we show mercy, the second thing we see is that Jesus demands an unwavering commitment. 57 says, As they were going along on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now Jesus, already in, this, in these passages, he's combining a call to mercy with a call to unwavering commitment. They go together. After all, it was his mercy that fueled his commitment to journey to the end through this difficult journey. Now, Jesus does not just model an example for us to follow. We are to enter his life, hardships and all. At times, Jesus had a place to rest his head at Peter's house. He had a place to rest his head at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. But it's not like he owned his own. I heard a preacher uh, one time say that uh, he felt sure that Jesus did own his own home and felt sure he had all kinds of wealth. I just find that contradictory to what I read in Scripture and um, what the church has taught for the last 2,000 years. So I'll maintain he had no home, but the beauty of when we're talking about home, we know that safe place. So whether that safe place is located in this city or another city, that safe place to go, the world may mistreat us, but if we could retreat back to our home, there's kind of a safe place. Well, he didn't, he didn't have that. And for the, and in between those times where he's visiting and being a guest in somebody's home, he didn't even know where he might lay his head. So there's, there's, um, I think that's the context for what he's saying. But this one who claimed he would follow Jesus wherever he'd go, he didn't know what he was saying. And I think this happens a lot in our day. When the gospel gets watered down. So that people really don't understand what they are committing to. They don't understand what they're being called to. They only see um this thing there's th- this, this beauty side of Jesus and they like that. And then I think a lot of times people are spreading a gospel which is a wrong gospel, it's a false gospel about that come to Jesus and your life will be better. So there's this ex- expectation that there will be no sufferings or no hardships or no illness, which is a false gospel. Cuz when we're called to follow Jesus, we call we're called to follow Jesus through his sufferings and through his hardships i think the question then for us is have you experienced any hardships by following jesus have you lost friendships because of what jesus means to you or because of your standard that you keep or your friends know that you you know are a uh, relig- religious people francesca and i were in a meeting and there were different names brought up of in our neighborhood and and the other people would say they're religious folks and i was like what what does that mean what does this religious folks mean you know what does that make me i don't know and it, it and it was never said with something that was that they were pleased about like you know there's the baker they're religious folks there's a, there the, and we're i think we're entering a time where your commitment to jesus is going to bring this kind of thing onto you more the thing you know has there been a gathering has there been a party has there been a tailgating opportunity that Your friends seem to be all be at, but you didn't make the list on the invites because of your stand in Jesus. Have you experienced any hardships because of him? Kent Hughes says, no one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. No one. I I think this point gets hard for us. I think, this, I think these are hard sayings. I think this is a hard lesson. And I think it's separating the, uh, whatever, that easy believism, that cultural Christianity. Yes, I'm a Christian. After all, Grandma, you know, was right here at Parkview United Methodist Church when it was built. Sure, I'm a Christian. I don't know what a Muslim is. I don't know what this is. So it's a checkbox thing. And this happens a lot. But there's, you're like, where's the transformation? I think if there's real transformation, this is true. He says... No one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. No one. If your Christianity has not brought discomfort to you, to to your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of a life out of step with the modern culture. Disliked, the occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ's rewards far outvalue anything lost by following Him. I couldn't have said that better, so I just wanted to say what He said. And the reality is, if you've not experienced any cost to following Him, then maybe we ought to follow closer. Maybe there ought to be enough difference in us that our friends do reject us. At times. And I'm not saying being a jerk to people. You you, you want Christ to be the obstacle, not you. You want Christ to be the obstacle. 59 says, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There is a sense of urgency in Jesus' answer. The man wanted a delayed response to following Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't telling the man to ignore the needs of his father. The Jews would have certainly taken care of their aging parents. This man would have been with his father instead of being out along the road to receive a message from Jesus if his father were actually on his deathbed or actually dead. There's this thing that he must have wanted to go back and the to be with an elderly parent and wait out his time have you ever talked to anybody that wanted to just kind of wait out the time and it could have been for all kinds of reasons but they're just not yet ready to follow the lord jesus responds with let the dead meaning spiritually dead bury their own dead but as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of god so he he called this man to this greater thing and i i I think this is very important for us i think our choices are not between good and bad. Our choices are between good and best. This idea that this man wanted to take care of his parents is not a bad idea. But there's an urgency in Jesus' message. And this thing of following him in this time, in this particular situation, is where he's passing by. I need to quit what I'm doing and get on the train and follow him. Are you willing to do that? For us, I think it's a lesson for us to say, okay, there's, we need to have an urgency. But then there's also a thing about prioritization. So we can, we can choose to invest our time in something that's even good. It's not, it's, not your, it's not the worst thing out there that you're making choices for. But is it going to be good or is it going to be kingdom um, minded? Is it going to be purposeful to the kingdom? He says to this guy, if you've been made alive in Christ, go and, t- and, and tell of the kingdom. Don't ignore your father's greatest need, which is spiritual and invisible with eternal implications. How often do we get caught up in the tyranny of the urgent and we keep our focus not on the invisible, not on the spiritual with, with the eternal implications, but we, we instead focus our time, our energies, our resources on those things that will be passing away. Our lives should be filled with an urgency to spread the gospel. Our lives should be filled with an urgency to share with our friends to share with our family. The the reality that when you're building into your children that they're only with you for a very short period of time and you have time to prepare them so that they enter the world and still love Jesus and carrying the gospel into the world, that's a reality. Life is just simply very short. We only have a short time here. I don't care what the time is, it's still short. Many people talk of the of of people that you know the, the world's going to wake up because you can see the signs of the second coming. I'm not sure that's true at all. I don't, know who, I don't know who can really tell. what. And they've only been thinking of signs of the second coming since for, like I don't know, the last 2,000 years or so. So when somebody's barking about that today, are they to be believed? I don't know. But what I do know is whether the second coming is really going to come today or tomorrow or another 2,000 years from now, what the reality, because of the way I've lived and where I've been, my experience tells me I don't know that I'll see you all next week. That's not just me. You all could be the ones dropping dead this time. It wouldn't necessarily have to be me. But it might be. But, but, but this thing, we don't have time and we can't assume we have time on our side. I think that's very short sighted when we act that way, when we think that way. So when we're talking of the urgency about family members and, and family members get to be tough, you know, there needs to be a time probably that you just be quiet and you live your life and you're a model for them. But if there's opportunity to say something to a family member, if there's opportunity to say something to a co-worker, we need to feel an urgency about that because you don't know whether you're going to see them, whatever, the next holiday, the next day. If it's a co-worker, you don't know if you're going to see them the next day. There needs to be a... Choose this day whom you will serve. There's an urgency about this following Jesus. And it's not this thing, well, I'm just going to put that out. If I retired, then I could better behave myself and these people who I work with who aggravate me and cause me stress, I wouldn't have to cuss around them, and I wouldn't be a poor example, so I'll just wait till I retire, and I'll become a, a, a Christian then. No, that's not the way it goes. Life is passing us by, and we need to uh, have an urgency about spreading the gospel. Verse 61. It says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I, I think this becomes a, a hard lesson, and, and uh, I think there's some context, and we'll flush that out. But there's this concept of what he's looking for is a real focus. It's, it's, it's a um, like a laser kind of focus. Um, so, sometimes I can be kind of like all over the place. Well, with this thing of following Jesus, he's looking for a straight, solid, real dedication, a real laser focus. Just this week, I got to visit with a potential church planter for Morgantown. And we talked about the possibilities of visits, um, like exploratory visits. And we talked about two um, purposes in those visits. Uh, one being is go and see in the city. what What is the Lord doing? Where is he working? And how can you join in? But the other was really primary. It's probably first. It's the thing of you go, you make visits, you see people. You get to explore the town and you see if the Lord is calling you there. And my advice to him was that that's going to be the most important thing because it's going to be the call of the Lord upon you so that when um, those trials and tribulations come, and they will, and when things don't go the way you want, and that will happen, it's not you, you don't just turn and say, well, geez, let's second-guess ourselves. I wish we would have taken this up other opportunity to go be a pastor in an existing church somewhere. It's the call that's going to sustain that church planter in Morgantown if he comes. It's the call that has sustained us. It's the call on you that sustains you. And it is so important, but that, that, you, we reflect on the call of the Lord, you know. And, it, and, it, and, and I encourage you to do that because the, so many times we're warped and we think, well, we made right decisions. My buddy that's, that's lost, he didn't make right decisions. Okay. The Lord has worked in you in his sovereign grace and has renewed you and called you to follow him. You reflect on that call so that sustains your momentum. That helps with your focus. Now the context in which Jesus may be referring is 1 Kings 19 where Elijah comes to Elisha. And while he was plowing, Elisha is plowing, Elijah comes and throws his um, robe over him and that's a call for Elisha to be discipled by Elijah. Well, Elisha says, "All right, but first let me go kiss mom and dad and say goodbye. And he allows that. But Jesus, perhaps, is alluding to that very thing, but he wants our undivided attention. He doesn't want us to compartmentalize our faith. It's, it's, and it, 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 these passages are saying that it is not enough to call yourself a Christian, put on your best clothes, go to church, even if you do that every Sunday. But then you live your life how you want, under your own guidance, under your own domain, the rest of your week. What these passages are saying is, I want all of your attention, I want to have my grace penetrate every area of your life. When you're making decisions, are they affected by the grace which, that you have received from me? It's a full commitment. So, for us, let us be willing to extend mercy even in the midst of rejection. That was the first thing we saw. May we have an unwavering commitment as we endure hardships and suffer the cost of following Jesus. And may God increase in us a sense of urgency to spread the gospel. And finally, may we have a commitment that is focused on him. So that all of our life is drawn into the following of him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.